0: Well, friends, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 25, and we're going to look at this psalm in its entirety this evening. Because of the length, I'll ask you just to remain seated and we'll give our attention to God's Word. Before we read the passage, let's ask the Lord to minister to us through the Scriptures. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to You and we pray specifically now that You would break open this, the bread of life, to our souls and feed us on it. We thank You that Your Word nourishes us and founds us upon Your character and promises. So Lord, come, and lighten our eyes, rejoice our hearts, lead us in the truth. And Lord, we pray that through Your Word we would find that we are being saved as we're sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Psalm 25, brethren, hear now God's word of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make known to me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, Pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. He makes known to them His covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Well, thus far, the Word of the Lord, and may He bless it to our hearts tonight. Well, as we've noted throughout Book 1 of the Psalter, trouble never seems to be far from David. And Psalm 25, in this psalm, trouble takes the shape of treacherous enemies coming to attack. And yet in David's trouble, as he writes of it, we learn a valuable lesson. We learn that the righteous have a weapon to take up against our foes. And it's not the tongue in slander, it's not the sword in vengeance, it's supplication to a good and gracious God. Psalm 25 is a prayer, a prayer for guiding and guarding grace. And David makes such a prayer because he knows what God is like, that He's good and upright, He's faithful and forgiving. Now, before we dive into the psalm, there's one feature about it that's worth mentioning at the outset. And it's that this psalm is an acrostic poem. That is, every letter of the Hebrew alphabet begins each phrase as we move through the psalm, hence the 22 verses that we have before us. Now, you may not have liked it when your English teacher pressed you into writing across poems, maybe about ninth grade English, but this literary device is used with some frequency in the psalms. And the discipline that's necessary to pen such a poem teaches us something else. Yes, there are times, beloved, to fire up arrow prayers to the Lord. Oh, Lord, help me. But the normal pattern of our prayers should be careful, measured, well-crafted pleas to the Lord. Prayer isn't a haphazard activity. It is a discipline that demands time, concentration, Meditation on the character of God and His works, and a deep reflection on our needs. Well, this acrostic poem falls out into three parts, so we're going to consider it under three headings. And they're in an acrostic poem, obviously, because of the means of writing that way. The themes are bouncing around, they're all throughout the psalm, but we're still focusing on these three parts. We begin in verses one to seven with a prayer for guidance. Now I want you to notice as David starts, before he even lays out a particular request, he expresses first his heartfelt trust in Yahweh in view of his enemies. Verse 1, To you, O Lord, or Yahweh, I lift up my soul. And what a beautiful expression that is of complete and utter dependence upon the Lord. David comes into God's presence as a needy man and he gives God all, all that He is, His whole heart. The common Hebrew posture for prayer was to stand and to lift up your hands. But David is indicating that this request reflects the cry of his soul that I lift up everything I am to You. I completely look to You, O Lord. And why does he do that? Well, verse 2, and note the personal language. O my God, in You I trust. Now, we often hear the psalmists call the Lord my God, but don't rush past that expression and fail to remember what it means. It means the sovereign, eternal, unchangeable God is in a covenant relationship with me. God is majestic and transcendent. He's high above. He's infinite in glory. But He's personal. He's knowable. He's approachable. And he's pleased to be known as the God of particular needy sinners. He reveals himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Individual believers can have intimacy with this God. And it's one thing to say, of course, that's my house or my car or even that's my wife or my husband. But to say that's my God, that He belongs to me. It almost seems irreverent, doesn't it? Isn't God too big and too holy to belong to me personally? Well, no, He isn't, brethren. The Lord has given Himself to us. Not just generally, but individually in relationship. So David comes to God, his divine companion, and he confesses trust in the Lord. It's so easy to rush in prayer to our requests. Lord, do this. Lord, intervene here. But David starts by asserting the relationship. I'm in trouble, Lord, but I trust You. I'm attacked, but I know You and I depend upon You, my God. That is a way to pray, to lay hold of the God we know as we begin to unveil our hearts to Him. I rest upon the rock, my God and Savior. And then David moves to his first request. It's a quick plea in verse 2 about his enemies. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. While David trusts in Yahweh, he does face the possibility in this situation of disgrace. Now We don't know exactly when this psalm was written. Probably during the long turmoil with Saul. And there's always the threat that David is going to be put to shame denounced, discredited, made to look defenseless and destitute. And as David prays, Lord, don't let me be put to shame, he's not thinking about his own personal glory, his reputation when he prays this way. For then he confesses, verse 3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Rather, they shall be put to shame who are wantonly treacherous or who are worthlessly unfaithful. Now it's interesting here that David prays not to be put to shame. And then he confidently declares that God doesn't put His people to shame. You see what David is doing? He's talking to himself in prayer. He's making a petition that is rooted in what God is like. His promise. And he repeats the promise to his own soul. What a great way to pray. Calvin defines prayer in one place as the f- fueled by the promises of God. We make a petition, and then we preach to our own souls the truth of who God is and what He does. We pray for help, and then we confess our God is our ever-present help in time of trouble. Well, here is David prays, he understands, though he's crying out not to be put to shame, this is really about the Lord's glory God, shall those who ultimately trust in You shall be put to shame? Shall those who cling to Your covenant be crushed? David knows that is not the destiny of the faithful. Paul puts it this way as he quotes Isaiah 28 in Romans 9. Whoever believes in Him that is in Christ the stone laid in Zion will not be put to shame. Brother, what a promise we should cling to. Now David has no idea how his enemies are going to face shame, while he and the people of God will not be put to shame. But he can look back at history and see Egypt and Pharaoh and his army put to shame. He can see Jericho and the city put to shame. He can see Goliath put to shame. And he can know, as I count upon the Lord, though I am a great sinner, God takes all my shame, all my condemnation away from me. For as Moses put it in Deuteronomy 32, The Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. How is it that we cannot be put to shame? Well, the sacrificial system has something to explain to us about it, doesn't it? As we are displayed publicly as pardoned and given peace with God. But brethren, don't we as New Covenant believers have a clear view of how we're not put to shame? That Jesus was disgraced in our place. That Jesus bore our sin and triumphed over our enemies. And thereby clinging to God and His covenant mercies, we have the exultant hope of deliverance. None who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ will be forsaken. The point David's getting at here is the character of our God is on the line when enemies come against us. And we can trust if we hope in the Lord That no one can successfully be against us because God is on our side. God has justified us and no one can condemn. When we stand before the bar of God's justice and that prowling lion comes to pounce on us and tell of all the horrible things we have done, it will simply be, but there my Savior stands. There He is, having borne all my shame. And devil, you may fling fling all of your fiery darts at me, but they just bounce off because they pierced Christ in my place. And He broke the power that you have against me. I shall bear no shame. Do you know what a glory it is as a Christian to know that you don't have to be ashamed? That your guilt is gone. What peace the soul can know when you are cleansed in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you have such an assurance that you will never be put to shame? Well, David is waiting for his adversaries to be put to shame here. He doesn't know how long that's going to take and it could be a while, but he knows ultimate vindication will come to him. But how is he to live in the meantime? How do we honor God while we wait on the Lord's ultimate vindication? Well, David knows he needs light And direction. So he prays, verse 4, Make me to know Your ways, O Lord. Teach me Your paths. Lead me in Your truth and teach me. What does David recognize about himself as he prays this way? He recognizes that he's a sinner. He's not prone by nature to walk in obedience. He needs to be shown what to do. What pleases the Lord. He needs the Lord to instruct him in the truth. And David is displaying something we all should demonstrate in prayer. Humble submissiveness. David doesn't arrogantly assume he can just figure it all out. I know what to do. I know how to act. No, he recognizes that his own heart is deceitful. He is unreliable. The Lord must lead me. I'm ignorant. I'm unstable. I'm natively foolish and I don't know what I should do. But I look to you, my God, to teach me. And why would the Lord teach him? Well, David says, for verse 5, You are the God of my salvation. Lord, You've bound Yourself to me in Your saving mercies. For You don't save Your people and leave us alone. God doesn't just throw us out of the nest to figure it out for ourselves. No, the Lord brings His grace to save and then to train. He's faithfully committed to us transforming us by the power of His Spirit, giving us the Holy Spirit as our teacher so that the work He began in us, He could carry to completion, that He would bring us all the way home. And David looks at this commitment God has made to him and he expresses back his commitment to God. For you I wait all the day long. Lord, my heart is postured to learn from You, to obey what You say, and to submit to Your providence. Brethren, is that the way it is for us? When we come in our tight spots, do we act with haste? Or do we seek the Lord? Do we follow our heart, our desires? Or do we wait upon God for direction, for clarity as to what is wise? Indeed, do we cry out for wisdom to choose what is best that we would move ahead thoughtfully and with consideration of God's faithfulness. Now, of course, striving to do what God would have us do is not somehow earning us brownie points with God. We can't earn God's favor. We rest upon mercy. And David recognizes that. See how he puts it in verse 6. He pleads, remember your mercy, O Yahweh, and your steadfast love, or literally, your steadfast love's That is, remember your kind covenantal acts, for they have been of old. This is the kind of God you are from everlasting. And God, I'm praying that you would just remain faithful to your character. David is clinging to the fact that God doesn't change. He is and forever remains a God of compassion who abounds in steadfast love. And we need the unending grace of the Lord to abide with us because we have a host of transgressions that could be called to mind. Verse 7, David recounts it. He knows he's a guilty sinner. He's dishonored the Lord in the past. He remembers the evil things that he has done. And he doesn't want the Lord to remember him according to his past corruption. Have you ever had those moments in your life where your conscience is rocked by an accusing devil who brings up your sinful past and shakes it in your face. How do we deal with that? Well, David prays that God wouldn't call to mind his crimes. Don't hold me accountable for the wrongs done, but rather, Lord, show boundless grace. Deal with me not according to my sin, but according to your steadfast love. Now, brethren, how is it a sinner who has violated God's law could even dare to pray like that? God doesn't owe us forgiveness. We don't merit his steadfast love, and yet he's made known himself to us as the Lord who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. We plead for lavish grace, not because we're owed it, but because the Lord is pleased to give it. And how pleased is he? He's so pleased that it pleased the Lord to crush his own son, not To send Jesus that our sins could be pardoned, that our sins would be remembered, the New Covenant promise, no more. Brethren, let us forever remember the cost of God's forgetfulness. It costs the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And yet for us, the Lord willingly gives Christ. Do you see how committed to you God is in love? Do you ever doubt that the Lord loves you? Look at the cross. Look at what God has done that your sin would be removed as far as the east is from the west. And God is saying to you, I will be your God. I will save you. No one will condemn you. And I will guide you with My truth. I am committed to you. So David prays for guidance. But then secondly, see, David reflects upon the goodness of the Lord. The goodness of the Lord. Now David begins asserting the things he knows about God which fortify his soul. The character of God isn't just head knowledge. Now we emphasize here at our church that you should learn your catechism. It's good to have short creedal statements packed with truth so that you can fill your brain with who God is. And if you do that when you're young, maybe you'll remember it when you're old. That's the aim of teaching children. So they can grow into the knowledge that they have planted in their minds. But we, won't, we don't want it to remain mere head knowledge. The knowledge of God is an anchor for your soul in trouble. It's steadying truth. It gives the trembling heart assurance of God's instruction, of His pardon, of His friendship, and of His deliverance. Note David declares, verse 8, what is God like? Well, good and upright is the Lord. Such a statement, brethren, is really the foundation of our faith. If the Lord is good, then in the fires of affliction, I know His faithfulness will not fail. His mercy flows to the believer. Evil won't swallow me up. What did Jesus say about our Heavenly Father? He delights to give good gifts, even the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. What did Joseph say to his brothers? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Our God is good even in the face of trouble. Psalm twenty-three, six. do you remember? His goodness and steadfast love or mercy pursues us until we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is a good God. But He's not just good, He's upright. That is, He'll always do what is right. You remember Abraham's question to the Lord as it's revealed to him, the judgment coming upon Sodom. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? What's the answer? Yes. Yes, He will. He will not condemn the righteous with the wicked. He will protect His people. And out of this constant goodness and upright guarding, David believes good and upright is the Lord, Verse 8, therefore, He, the Lord, instructs sinners in the way. I want to ask you a question. Does that naturally follow? Does the God who is perfectly righteous really teach sinners? Wouldn't He natively recoil from sinners? Stay away from sinners? Have nothing to do with sinners? And yet, God comes close to teach. He remains perfectly holy while graciously stooping to instruct us. If we see this in Psalm 25, maybe we won't be shocked when we get to the Gospels and Jesus is called the friend of sinners. He comes near to sinners to teach them. Jesus is just revealing what our Heavenly Father is like. And in God's grace, He takes the unworthy and the hell-deserving, and He not only saves them, but He instructs them. Think of how this is revealed in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments. How does it start? There's a little preface. That, I'm your God. I saved you from Egypt. Now live like this. That's the kindness, the goodness of God then instructing His people. Brethren, we don't deserve an ounce of God's guidance. And yet, He doesn't treat us here as our sins deserve. Rather, verse 9, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. Now, how can we not be humble when we see this unmerited favor given in our instruction? Humility is a hallmark of the believer and to such a one, a humble person. God shows what is pleasing to Him. The Lord comes to us in our bruised and battered state in this broken world. And as it were, He takes us by the hand and He leads us with His counsel. What kindness from our Father. He shows us how to live. He shows us what is right. And isn't this what the redeemed sinner wants to know? How can I please the Lord who loved me? How can I turn away from my native folly and do what is honoring in His sight? Well, friends, is this what we seek? Do we seek to know what the right way of the Lord is? David is saying to all of God's people, our God will teach us. How will He do it though? Well, that shouldn't be surprising to you. Scripture. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How much do you really want to be guided by the Lord? I think you'll discover by how much you pay attention to God's Word. How much are you in it? How much do you take of it to put in your soul? Are you taught of the Lord because you give give yourself to His Word? And then David is sure as he thinks upon God's goodness. Verse 10, that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. This is really an Old Testament version of Romans 8.28. Whatever the ways of the Lord are, on whatever path He leads me, teaching me of Himself, God remains to me full of covenant love and faithfulness. Those things never cease. So what David means here is if you love the Lord, you can be sure, even if you're in the face of a hard providence like the attack of an enemy or sickness or facing death, you can be sure God won't fail you. All of His ways are steadfast love and faithfulness. His love won't end. He keeps working out His perfect plan for His glory and our good. And oh, to grip the goodness of God when we're in the throes of trouble. It's what... Jeremiah remembers in the depth of Lamentation. In Lamentations chapter 3 is the section of Lamentations everybody knows where Jeremiah has just recounted how horrible his suffering is. And it's as though the Lord has shot His arrow and pierced me through the inner organs. That sounds pretty horrible, doesn't it? God has taken me and made my teeth the grind and the gravel. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Do you embrace that truth? All the ways of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. And as David looks at that, he's still conscious of his failings. Do you see how his prayer for forgiveness is just meandering all the way through this psalm? He prays again, verse 11, For Your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. Now that's a really bold request if you think about it. Because of Your name, O God, pardon my great guilt. Why? Because of God's name. David's making an argument in prayer. Because of Your name, pardon my great guilt. Well, what or who has God declared Himself to be? He is a God with whom there is forgiveness. He is good and ready to forgive. He receives repentant sinners. And the depth of His mercy is shown in the blood He will spill for our pardon that He gives even the greatest treasure, our Savior Christ, in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sin. If we have great guilt, we come to a God whose name is greater than all of our sin and who can blot out all of our transgressions. Can you pray that way? Can you come to God and confess your sin and argue Pardon my sin, though it's great, because of Your name, Lord. I take hold of You. This is who You've made Yourself known to be, a forgiving God. So I don't come presuming that You're going to forgive because it's Your job. I come laying hold of what You tell me in Your Word. You have said You are a God of forgiveness. And I I weigh my soul on that truth. And then David asks a question, verse 12, Who is the man who fears the Lord? He's asking, do you see a God-fearing man? Well, what will the Lord do for him? Him, emphatic, He will instruct in the way that He should choose. David's reasserting the Lord teaches His people who are sinners, yes, but sinners who rest in God and long to follow Him. The Lord teaches His people what pleases Him. Brethren, that is such an immense comfort that our God is committed to shepherding us when you're walking through tumultuous seasons of life, when the difficulties just fall upon you and wait, the idea is the Lord comes alongside of you to unveil to you what honors Him. Things don't have to be dark for your soul because His Word is a lamp for your feet and a light for your path. And as we read His Word, His Word is not an impersonal, cold interaction. God's Word is living and active. God Himself is teaching us as we read the Word. Do you see what Dave is conveying? The Lord is personally and lovingly instructing me in what is pleasing in His sight. Do I believe that about the Lord? That when I come to read my Bible, it's a love letter from God. And He's engaging with me. As I sit underneath the preaching of the Word, Christ is speaking to me so that I receive the Word not as the Word of man, but as the very Word of God. Do we believe the Spirit is at work to illumine the truth and give us clarity and direction? Do we trust when we're perplexed that God will give us insight? He'll sharpen us by the Word of God in the face of our every trouble. He won't leave us In a dark spot with no direction. David is convinced this is how God deals with his people. And then he's further convinced in verses 13 and 14 that the believer will know blessing and communion. I could preach a whole sermon on these two verses, so I'll try to hurry up and talk about it. But this is amazing. First, there's blessing. His soul, that is the God fearer's soul, shall abide or reside in well-being. And the sense here is, God's goodness will come to the one who fears the Lord. Doesn't the psalmist say elsewhere, Psalm 84, no good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly? And yet, be careful that you don't run off with that verse to some type of prosperity nonsense. Blessing. Abiding in God's good doesn't mean a trouble-free life. I can prove that to you because David in Psalm 25 is praying that his enemies won't put him to shame. He's in the middle of trouble. Not everything for the believer is butterflies and rainbows. Life is hard. It's not all about ease and abundance. And yet, God's good things are not wrapped up in your life being easy. It's rather being assured of His love when your life is hard knowing He pardons you when troubles press you, finding His attending presence. The great declaration of Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we literally are having peace with God. We are having it. We have it right now. We have peace with God. We have the goodness of the Lord. What blessings! And then, even more shockingly, verse 14, The friendship or literally the counsel of the Lord is for those who fear Him and He makes known to them His covenant. The sense here is God reveals His purposes and plans, His character and ways to those who fear Him. One of the most amazing statements in Scripture is in Isaiah 41 verse 8 that Abraham is called by the Lord. My friend. Can you even just think on that a second? A fallen, flawed sinner. God Himself calls His friend. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. The secret things, well, they belong to God, but brethren, the revealed things do belong to us and to our children forever. We we have intimacy with God. He opens up His ear to us and... He looks upon us and He gives us His Word that we would know His truth. And that isn't true for the unbeliever. They're blind to God's ways. They don't have access to God. They're mystified by the Lord. They can't make sense of tragedy. They are deaf to Him. They have no comfort in the face of death. The world looks at enigmas and paradoxes, the problem of evil and suffering, but the believer is full of light and comfort. We know that God is sovereign and good. We know that God is working His purposes out. We know that nothing can thwart Him and we're sharpened even by trouble. And because the Lord has given us His friendship or His counsel, we trust Him. David reflects on that as he closes this section, verse 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. What David is saying is, I can rely upon God patiently in my present distress because I've learned by experience time and time again, the Lord has come with His deliverance. The craftiness of the enemy may be sharp, he may lay his net and snare me, but God's delivering power is greater and He's my friend. What a truth. But then finally, see with me. A prayer for deliverance. Verses 16-22. to David now circles back to his trouble. You remember he prayed at the start, let me not be put to shame, let not my enemies exult over me. And now David returns to that situation where he's facing difficulty and he needs God's guardian grace. Verse 16, he prays, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. I want you to think about the argument David is using here in prayer. He's telling the Lord why the Lord should turn and be gracious to Him. Because God, I'm lonely. And I'm afflicted. Now how in the world is that an argument for help? Well, it assumes something about the character of the Lord. It assumes God's heart is tender to the downtrodden. Isn't that something we see in the ministry of Jesus? He pities afflicted people. That's the heart of God. And David's prayer assumes that while God sees our state, He delights to help those who express a need to Him. Well, do we plead that way in prayer? Do we plead our pitiful state? Do we spell out our our affliction? Do we tell God our anguish over our situation? Do we acknowledge our great weakness before the Lord? Sometimes your friends are tired of hearing about it, but the Lord isn't. And He wants you to spell out all of your difficulty. Well, that's what David is doing. He comes as a child to a father. A father who pities him. And he lays it all out that the God who has great power would come to aid the defenseless. And then David further details his afflicted state. He says, verse 17, the troubles or literally the tight places or squeezings of my heart. And note the plural there. The squeezings or tight places of my heart are enlarged. David is indicating... My case is urgent because I'm being pressed in all kinds of ways. Things are getting worse. And I don't think he just means in an outward sense. David has inward inward affliction. Can't we relate to that? Haven't we all experienced situations in life where we're gripped by anxiety, by fear, by doubts within? Don't we know what it feels like to have tightness in our chest? and a sapping to our body, loss of sleep, all because of trouble. David feels like he's being pummeled with wave after wave, so he pleads with the Lord, bring me out of my distresses. Plural. David believes not only does God delight to help the weak, but He has the power to rescue from inner anguish, and He can give my heart relief. What is the divine antidote for anxiety? It isn't just stop being anxious, though that's a command. It's bring your anxious cares to the Lord who cares for you. Well, David continues in the same vein. Verse 18, consider or see my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sin. In a sense, it's a strange request because God sees everything. And yet the saints often ask the Lord to see. God, look, take notice, pay attention. And Lord, as you see my heart, what else do you see? You see all my faults. So David prays again. Lord, as you discern within me my heart thoughts, the wonderings of my soul, pardon my iniquity. Again, is that the way we pray? Do we keep asking God for forgiveness, not just of the sins of which we are conscious, but for all of our sins? Brethren, it's so easy when we're in trouble especially, to get locked in on the need for relief, but to forget that we're unworthy of the relief that we seek. That our sin can cloud our fellowship with God. But David remembers he's a guilty sinner. He needs God's pardoning grace. And he doesn't want God just to see. He wants Him to forgive. And then he prays that the Lord, verse 19, would literally see my enemies for they are many, and with violent hatred they hate me. David is outgunned, overmatched, and he's acknowledging his loneliness here. He's violently assaulted by many, so he needs a superior power to come to his aid. Thus he says, verse twenty: "Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. David expects the Lord will never forsake him. Now brethren, tonight we may not have malicious enemies like Saul breathing down our neck to spill our blood. We may not have men surrounding our house to kill us as soon as they see us. But there is a roaring lion, the devil, who aims to overtake us and put us to shame. He wants to scandalize us with some flagrant sin. He wants to sink us under accusations until we forsake the Lord. David's hope here is the same hope that we have we serve a God who guards our soul. If our trust is in Him, we will never be disappointed. David wraps up and he says, knowing he's had to learn to wait upon the Lord. Lord, while I wait, verse 21, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for You. It's tempting under severe pressure to excuse faithless actions. How do we act when we're stressed? We're short and snippy. How do we act when we're tired? We're easily irritated. How do we act when we're overwhelmed by trouble? We neglect responsibilities. Maybe even the weightiest of them. Prayer and the reading of God's Word. But David implies here that the squeezed believer who's waiting upon the Lord should not grow lax in uprightness. We want to evidence integrity. And I need the Lord to grant that integrity and uprightness would come to me and preserve me. Lord, strengthen me for faithfulness faithfulness to You. And then David closes, turning away from himself to all the people of God. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all His troubles or His tight places. Brethren, David knows the principles of redemptive history. The devil isn't just after one of us. He's after all of us. That's why Ephesians 6 calls y'all to stand. Y'all to fight. Y'all to put on the armor of God. And what do we all need? We need redemption. That word, of course, can mean specifically redemption from sin that comes through the blood of Christ but it can also mean a larger principle of redemption from all the sufferings of this present time. I think that's how David is using it here like Paul does really in Romans 8. We pray not just for a temporal deliverance from hard things. We pray that God would redeem us from every effect of the curse. Take away all sorrowing and sighing. David is groaning for glory. And as we groan, we pray knowing our God will teach us as we wait upon Him, He will protect us and He will guide us until we have complete redemption in Him. May we believe these kind of things about our God. Let's pray together. Lord, You are a God to guide, a God to deliver, and a God who instructs us in the way that we should go. And Lord, we don't deserve any of this. But Lord, we come to confess that You are a God who forgives and a God who instructs. And we pray that we would take up Your Word and read and see how You teach us. We pray, Lord, that we would be fired in the heart to seek You in prayer and plead for wisdom and plead for pardon. We ask, O Lord, that You would meet with us. May it be sweet to our soul that we could be called the friends of the Lord, those taken into Your counsel, those guided by Your flawless Word. Lord, meet with us and instruct us. For we trust in You. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.